looking at uh, Peter's second letter. And we're looking at this part of the letter where Peter is talking about seven virtues. Okay, seven virtues that if you really want to be fruitful and effective in life, you need to be taking steps to add these to your life, to your faith. But as we saw last week, you know, you can, you can write out a list of virtues. And, you know, in Peter's day, they were, they were two a penny. There were loads of them. A list of virtues, stuff that you should be doing. And, you know, as I say, they were commonplace in Peter's day. And you can think, hey, if I live a virtuous life, the gods will bless me. That's what they were thinking. And we, society, will approve of you. So here's a list of stuff I need to be doing. And if I do all of this, God will bless me, the gods will bless me, and society will approve of me. And as I said earlier on, maybe you're here this morning with family or friends, and maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. But maybe you already are a Christian. Either you'd call yourself one or you genuinely are one. You've had an experience uh, like the people who will baptize later. But it is still possible, whichever camp you are in, it is still possible to think similarly to those in Peter's day. If I live a good enough life, God will bless me. And to which those around us in society might add, absolutely, and if you work for an inclusive society, or if you uphold traditional conservative values, we'll approve of you. Okay, but what Peter is saying here in this passage is that Christianity and the gospel, Christianity turns that logic on its head because it says, no, it is because of what Jesus has already done for you how he lived the virtuous life that you failed to live, and how he died the death you deserve to die, and that as you put your trust in him and not in yourself, God already approves of you. He already accepts you, and he blesses you in Christ, not because of your moral excellence, but because of Christ's. And in light of that, hey, go live a life of love. Go live a life of virtue. Now, of course, you might hear that and say, yeah, great, but if I put my faith in Christ like that, or if I think I have, how can I know that that really will has become true for me? How can I know that he really has accepted me? Or if I do this for the first time, that he will accept me? How can I know that I really have become and am a genuine Christian? Because the stakes are high, aren't they? If you get this wrong. Or how can I know that down the line, I won't just throw in the towel and decide that Christianity is not for me? Because some of us have had friends who have done just that. You know, maybe you've seen examples in the, in the media. You've read about Christian leaders, de- you know, Christian, not just you and me, but you know, well-known, platformed Christian leaders who are deconstructing their faith. How can you know that won't be true for you? How can you know that you genuinely are a Christian? 
How can you know that this stuff about God blessing you is really true of you? How can you know that you won't throw in the towel years down the line? Well, Peter says, you can know, and you can know with certainty. First point then, calling and falling. Calling and falling. Now, the, um, the Swiss love two things, don't they? Cheese and elections. And the, if you've noticed, okay, the posters for the next elections, they are going up everywhere. Imagine that you getting into heaven was also down to a vote. Just imagine that you had to stand, if you wanted to get into heaven, if you want God to approve of you, it, imagine that you had to stand for election against everybody else. And you had to put up posters of you looking wise, or pretty, or both. Or imagine that you had to debate all the other candidates and say why you, above everybody else, was worthy to get in. What chance would you stand? Or worse, imagine that there was only one elector. There's only one voter. And you have to convince him. And that elector knows everything about you. Not you in some glossy Instagram-esque pose. Not you dodging the questions like a skilled politician. But you as you really are. You and your darkest secrets. You and your most deepest private thoughts. And the elector knows it all. What chance would you stand? What chance would you stand of him choosing you? Well, look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have already been chosen. It's over and done. The decision's been made. You have already been elected to God's kingdom and to experience God's endless favor upon you. And it was all down to the choice of one person. And he has already chosen you. But it wasn't based on your performance. And it wasn't based on how smart you are or how well you brush up. As Peter said back in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of who? You? Me? No, of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So you are chosen not because you managed to convince him that you are worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. Your election stands on his grace towards you. And God loves you because he loves you. And he's chosen you because he's chosen you. But again, how can you know that's true for you? How can you know that? Because there's clearly a risk that that's not the case, isn't it? Verse 10 again. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And the word for fall means to lose one's footing. 
like someone walking a narrow mountain path. They stumble and they disappear over the edge, gone. And Peter is likening the Christian life to just such a journey, at the end of which lies, verse 11, the entrance into the eternal kingdom. But how can you know you're going to get there? How can you know that you're not going to stumble and never arrive? And of course, for Peter, this isn't, I mean, it's not of academic interest for you and me, I hope. It certainly wasn't for Peter, because Peter was a man who knew only too well the danger of misplaced self-confidence, that this could never happen to him. It's why as he senses death approaching, what he calls the putting off of my body in verse 14, it's because of that that he's writing. And he's writing, verse 12, to remind you. Verse 13, to stir you up by way of reminder. But remind them of what and why? Well, think about it. Why do you need reminding of anything? Because we're in danger of forgetting it, aren't we? And because it's important. You see, imagine that you are walking through a market, you know, Morge Market, Veve Market, Lausanne Market, and the stallholders in the market, they are all calling out to you. Fish! Who wants fresh fish? Fresh fish, come over here, fish! Cheese! Who wants cheese? Come and buy the best cheese over here. Except instead of foodstuff, this is a marketplace of ideas, of philosophies of life. And every day you are walking through that marketplace and you are exposed to all of these different traders and they're calling out to you through advertising, through media, through podcasts, through your friends. This is what really matters in life. Come to my stall. No, this is the kind of life you should aspire to. No, come over here. This is what really matters in life. This is what you need. And within all of that noise, all of those messages, the message of the gospel is just one voice. And it's not even the loudest. Do you hear it? Or do you forget it? I mean, not literally forget it, like someone comes to you and says, Christ died for you, and you go, really? I had totally forgotten. <laughs> no, the fact that what you've forgotten is that you are loved and called and chosen because of God's grace to you in Christ and not because of your efforts. And you've forgotten it because that ceases to be the thing that shapes you and motivates everything that you do in you, your life. You know it, but you forget it in the trenches of life. And so Peter is determined to remind them and us of that gospel. And yet he's even more specific than that, isn't he? Verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? Well, the qualities he's told us about in verses 5 to 7. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. The stuff that we should be daily supplementing our faith with if we want to be fruitful and effective in our knowledge of Christ. Now, why remind us of those? Because, verse 10 again, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Second point then, diligence and practice. 
Okay, calling and falling, diligence and practice. Now, I became a Christian when I was uh, about 17. I was at um, sixth form in school, and shortly after I became a Christian, I was asked to go and see the, my head of year in his office, and he sat me down and he said, so, slack. That's what they used to call us in those days, slack. I gather that you have become a muscular Christian. Apparently that was a sort of term that was used in the Victorian era for a kind of Christianity that encouraged manliness. Okay, needless to say, I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. I mean, I knew I'd become a Christian, but as far as I could tell, there had been zero change in my muscle mass. More's the shame. I wish there had been. I was still weedy me, and I have absolutely no idea what I replied to him. Probably something like, yeah, muscular Christian? Have I? Okay, but he's got a point, hasn't he? Verse 10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And the word for diligent is from the same root as the noun that Peter uses in verse 5 for make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So he's saying, Peter's saying, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, put muscle into it, put energy and enthusiasm into proving that you are the real deal, that you really are a Christian. Because what does it mean to confirm something? In Peter's day, it meant to prove the validity, the genuineness of it. You're like a goldsmith performing the acid test applying nitric acid to the metal to see if it's really gold so you can confirm and prove the validity of your faith, Peter says. And you are to be diligent. You are to put muscle into doing it. Imagine you want to buy a second-hand car. Uh, so what do you do? You pay a visit to the second-hand car salesman, honest men, if ever there were ones, and you go see the car, you've seen a car online, you go and see it, and it's on the forecourt of the garage, and it is sparkling clean, and the alloy wheels are pristine, and the tires are spotless, and you go, wow, this is great, can I take it for a drive? And the dealer, who up until this moment was all smiles, begins to hesitate, becomes uncomfortable, starts making excuses. But you insist, I'm not going to buy a car I haven't taken for a ride. And eventually he, he hands you the key. And you get in, you turn the key in the ignition, and nothing. Nothing. So you get out, you go around the front, you open the bonnet, and there's no engine, and it's not a Tesla. That car, that car is going nowhere, is it? So you turn, you turn around, you walk away, you try another dealership. They have an identical looking car, except this time when you ask to take it for a spin, the salesman goes, sure, be my guest, tosses you the key, 
and away you go. And this car really does go. Which one is a shell? And which one have you proven to be a real car? The one that motors. But it's not driving it that makes it a car. It's driving it that proves and confirms it really is a car and not a shell. And Peter's saying, you and I need to do that with our calling and our election. We need to put it through the paces. We need to take it on a road test. We need to take it out on the road of life. We need to prove that this is the real deal by making every effort and being diligent to supplement our faith with these seven virtues. Or as Peter so as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 verse 1, hey, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, what do you, maybe you hear that and think, yeah, but Martin, if, I, if I'm honest, that has not been me. You know, I'd, I'd call myself a Christian, but if I'm honest, up until now, I've drifted rather than been diligent. I've been lethargic rather than actively seeking to grow in virtue. Does that mean that I am not a genuine Christian? And I would say to you, well, that depends on what you do now, doesn't it? You see, the second car, the car that really was a car and not just a shell, that car would still have been a real car if it had been covered in bird poop and been used as a garbage can with garbage stuffed up to the windows. But to prove it, you're gonna to have to clean it up and get the engine running. And Peter is writing to people, some of whom, as we're gonna discover as we go through, think that you can live however you want and still call yourself a Christian. And Peter is saying, no, you can't. You need to be diligent to prove it. You need to confirm it by making every effort to live like you really are a Christian, with Christ as your king, and with him as your greatest example. And doing that, Peter says, won't just confirm your faith, verse 10 again, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I want you to think how the opposite might be true. Let's just work through them, okay? Peter says in verse five that you are to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. What if you don't? What if you're careless about your character? What if you're careless about your moral integrity? Then you might find yourself ensnared in some sin and if it stays hidden, you'll either be eaten up by guilt because you know deep down the truth or it'll harden your heart to God because you can't bear to draw near to him and feel his gaze upon you. But if it does come to light, you'll either feel shame and beat yourself up or you'll sink into self-pity and blame others or do both. In either case, if you don't remember the gospel, your sin will drive you away from God, not towards him, and you put yourself at risk of falling. 
Or think about the knowledge that we're called to add in verse 5. Okay, what if you don't add knowledge? What if you're not seeking to grow in your knowledge and your understanding? Well, maybe, maybe you will hear the arguments of the atheists and the skeptics, and you'll fall for those arguments, and you'll begin to think that maybe I really am stupid to believe what I believe, when... If you had added knowledge to virtue, you would have begun to see the holes in their arguments and how so many of their questions depend on a Christian view of the world in the first place. Or what if you don't, verse 6, supplement knowledge with self-control? Well, then, if you're not seeking to control yourself, you will just run after every pleasure, the next pleasure that comes up, any pleasure. And pleasure, any pleasure will begin to feature, become a feature of your life, and it won't be long before you start thinking that there's a whole load more pleasure out there in the world than in Christ. And like the prodigal son, you'll leave your father's home heading for the pigsty of pleasure. Okay, or what if you don't add the steadfastness that Peter talks about in verse 6? Then when sorrows come, you will be overwhelmed by life's pain. And rather than pressing on through the storm in the knowledge that the refuge of God's kingdom lies ahead, you'll turn back and you'll think that the world or unbelief offers you something safer. Or think about what happens if you don't supplement steadfastness with godliness, verse 16. The godliness that was this combination of reverence for God and respect for those he has put in authority over us. What if you don't daily supplement your faith with that kind of godliness? Well, you will become vulnerable to the spirit of the age. The wind blowing from the political left or right And you'll begin to think that you're the one who decides what is right and wrong, and no one else can tell you what you should be doing. And maybe you can think of Christians, friends or Christian leaders, who who used to speak lots about Jesus, but now there's something else. They're always going on about something else. Something else has become their hobby horse. There's some new issue, politics or anti-woke agenda or nationalism or whatever. It used to be about Jesus, but now it's this. And you wonder, whatever happened to Jesus? Maybe a failure to add godliness happened to Jesus. Or verse 7, supplement godliness with brotherly affection. But again, what if you don't? Well, let's let's be honest, getting hurt by people in church is pretty much inevitable. But if you are not making every effort to cover those offences with affection, those offences are going to build up and with them scar tissue and you'll become hard-hearted. First to your brother and sister, then to the church and then ultimately to the faith. And so in the absence of the ointment of affection... The wounds fester, and eventually it'll become too painful to come. You can't face it. What about the final virtue, love, verse 7? Okay, what if you don't make every effort to be adding love for God and for one another to your faith? 
Well, like a bucket with holes in it, your love will eventually run dry. And the problem is we all do what we love doing. That's, that's what we do. We do what we love doing. So if the bucket of love for God and his people is empty, God and his people will simply slide down your list of priorities. And then instead of sticking on the path to Christ's kingdom, which can be a hard path in places, you're going to start noticing all of these other paths. And, oh, that one's got something down the end of it that I love more than what's on the end of this path. And, oh, so does that one over there. And you find yourself heading down alternative paths of your loves. But Peter says, if you do practice these things, and if you are daily putting muscle and energy into cultivating your character and your relationship with God and his people, you will never fall. Okay? But if it requires effort, how can you know that you've ever done enough? Because the danger is, is that you can begin to think that me finishing the race, me crossing the finishing line, me entering the kingdom, it's all about effort, it's all about muscle, it's all down to me. And that is fertile ground for anxiety and the thought that God will only love me if I do do enough. Last point then, the king and the welcome, the king and the welcome. And as we've seen, the first thing Peter does in this letter, very first verse, is tell us that we have obtained all the honors and the privileges of faith, not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus. And he has called us and chosen us, not because of our moral excellencies, but because of Christ's. But what he begins with grace, he ends with grace. Verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that verb, provided for, is the same verb Peter used earlier for supplementing your faith with these seven virtues. In other words, we can think, here I am, I'm busy working away, I'm supplementing my face with virtue and knowledge and with self-control, and it's all down to my effort. And Peter is saying, well, do you know what? Actually, it is Jesus doing the supplementing through you. It is him who's providing for you. It's him who is working these things in you. As Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Who's doing the working? Who's putting in the muscle? Paul, but who's giving him the strength? Who's giving him the muscle? Christ. Or as he says to the Philippians, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as you do this work on your character and on your knowledge, what you discover is that even you're wanting to do it and then you're doing it is all down to Jesus working in you. 
And he doesn't do just enough so that you limp across the line, exhausted and broken. Peter says an entrance will be richly provided for you. So this isn't you getting into the kingdom by the skin of your teeth. Okay? Instead, this is what it's going to be like when England win the Rugby World Cup and come home with the trophy. Because that's going to happen. And, <laughs> and there is going to be a feast. Or think of a, think of a victorious Olympic athlete who is welcomed home by her home city. Peter is saying, when you finish your race, when you finally reach home, there is going to be a lavish feast. And Christ, your King, verse 11, our Lord and Saviour, he's the one who's generously, super abundantly paying for it all. This man will pay for everything because he's the king. He's the king who turns gallons of water into gallons of wine. He's the king who takes a few rolls of bread and turns them into a feast for a multitude. And he's the one who says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more our super abundant, generous king, our king of grace. So how can you confirm your calling and election? How can you never fall? How can you finally enter the kingdom? Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of your king and then make every effort to grow more like him. Let's pray.